Our text this morning is Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And this is the word of Almighty God. Jesus speaking here says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You pray with me. Lord God, even now, for Christians who know this passage back and front, even now, for those who don't know you at all, even now, as we stand here together, God, would you mightily work that we might see your glory? And that we might learn to better think like you would have us think. Especially about your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Somewhat early in his ministry on earth, the Lord Jesus went up on a small mountain in Galilee. Where he sat down and he taught his disciples about the good news of the kingdom of God. We've got that teaching of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Do you know what we call that? that? That passage, those three chapters of Matthew? The Sermon on the Mount, right? The sermon begins with Jesus sharing what some people call the Beatitudes. There are eight identifying markers for people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Because people who are genuinely saved, genuinely God's subjects in God's kingdom, are supposed to be different than the world around them. Jesus says these people are blessed. But who are they? What are the markers? The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, and those who have been persecuted, who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. Those people value things differently than does the surrounding world. They think and they act differently than the surrounding world. And being different than the world is great. It is, in fact, our calling from God but I think there's a risk if all you do is look at yourself and think about how differently you think than the world around you. That's easy to do as a Christian, isn't it? To start looking around and be like, I'm very different than them. But if being internally different from the world is all we're supposed to do, we should do what the monks did in years gone by, right? We can run off to a monastery, we can lock ourselves behind the walls, and we can pray and study to our heart's content. And by the way, that, sometimes that sounds kind of good to me. Although, uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that I'm in the mountain monastery thing. If any of y'all want to go in on an island, though, let me know, okay? Now, 
God has a different plan for most of us who are citizens of his kingdom than to go cloister ourselves away and hide from the world. We're not allowed to turn inward. We're not allowed to hide. In fact, we're called by God to make a difference, aren't we? Y'all know Jesus is brilliant, right? Right after giving the Beatitudes, he then turns our attention to the calling we have to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Remember that passage? And those images can bring up a lot of thought. They're they're full sermon-length long discussions. But if you roll it all together, you'll come up with one major thought, and that is impact. Citizens of the kingdom of God impact the world around them. Salt impacts your food, doesn't it? Amen. Flavors it nicely. It's a good thing. Salt preserves, and Christians are to preserve the world from destruction as best we can. But like light, we point the world toward a relationship with God. We, 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 we want to look different for the honor of God. We point people toward the glory of God. And all those things we do by the power of God, in the strength of God, for the glory of God, not for our own fame. But what marks a people who are the citizens of God's kingdom? What what makes us look and think and act different from the world even while we try to live lives that will impact the world for the glory of God? Well, following the teaching of Jesus into the passage we're going to study today, we're going to find the answer. Because every bit of it, Christian, has to do with your and my response to the word of God and our thoughts about Jesus who perfectly fulfills everything God ever promised. See, quite soon in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to challenge the way that many of the religious teachers around him responded to the scriptures. And in many instances, Jesus is going to let his followers know that what is popularly being taught from Scripture is something he rejects. But this is important. Hear me here. This is not because Jesus rejects the Word of God. Instead, Jesus upholds the Word of God and he challenges faulty, false application of the word of God by the legalistic culture around him. So this morning, for you who like to take notes, there'll be four points to find in the four verses we study. And we're going to look at how the the Savior responds to the scripture. And we're going to seek to have the same heart for God's word as does Jesus. So our first point in verse 17, Jesus fulfills scripture. Jesus fulfills scripture. Look at verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay. I know what you're thinking. You ever said something like that? How many of you have looked at somebody who's given you a funny look and said, I I know what you're thinking? Maybe you, maybe you just said something that sounds a little strange and the people around you got a funny look. Maybe you did something that came off a little odd 
But you had a good reason for doing it. You expect that the people who are seeing you are going to somehow object to what you've said or what you've done. And you're trying to head it off at the pass, right? You're trying to say, no, no, I know what you're thinking, but I've got a good reason. You ever do that? In the Bible, you actually see that kind of preemptive argument style used all through uh, different places, like the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, God points out, I know you guys are saying this against me, and then he answers their evil accusations. In Romans chapter 9, Paul, who he wrote about God's sovereign election. Then Paul anticipates the objections of those who think that, object, that, that, that election makes God look bad. And Paul's like, no, no. And he answers their objection. Sometimes, if you know you're about to say or do something that others are going to object to or that others are going to misunderstand, you will explain ahead of time so that the discussion can go a little more smoothly. And that is precisely what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5.17. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. So Jesus is correcting a potential misunderstanding that may arise by what he's about to teach. What do I say what he's about to teach? There's nothing in the Beatitudes and there's nothing in the salt and light that might make you think Jesus was going against the Old Testament scriptures. But what Jesus is about to teach in the rest of the sermon, it's going to set some religious teachers against him. The law and the prophets, what is that? It's the Old Testament of the Bible. It's all the Old Testament of the Bible. Sometimes they would say the law, the prophets, and the writings, but all things considered, that is all the scripture that had been written by Jesus' day. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. The word abolish there in your Bible, it's a Greek word that literally means to tear down something or to destroy something. At the end of Jesus' ministry, there were false accusers that said, this man said he will destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's the same Greek word for destroy as is here translated abolish. Jesus says, I didn't come to tear down the Old Testament. And then, why would he say this? Because if you watch what Jesus teaches next, he's going to teach with a pattern starting in the 20s all the way through the end of this chapter. And the pattern is going to be, you've heard that it was said, but I say. And in every one of those teachings, Jesus is going to point out the common teaching of the religious people of his day. And then he's going to show that he's got more authority than those teachers have because he's going to show a different and a better teaching of the word of God. So, for example, in Matthew 5 alone, Jesus will correct faulty teaching on anger, verses 21 to 26, lust, 27 to 30, divorce, 31 to 32, vows, 33 to 37, responding to the evil, 38 to 41, enemies, 42 to 47, and righteousness in verse 48. Chapter 6 Jesus is going to show that the current religious crowd is mishandling biblical teaching on giving, praying, and fasting. 
Now, if you were a big fan of the modern religious establishment and you heard Jesus say of their teaching, teaching you thought was biblical, you've heard these guys say, but I'm telling you, you might have thought that Jesus was tearing the scriptures apart. But Jesus is taking the faulty teaching of the leaders of his day and he's offering something more faithful to scripture. The Savior says, I haven't come to abolish them, to tear them down. I've come to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. And one more Greek here. The Greek word behind the word fulfill, it's kind of important here. It's used all through the gospel according to Matthew. And the vast majority of the uses will sound like this. In Matthew 1.22, the Bible says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. If you think back over Matthew, do you realize you see that kind of writing 13 or so times? Maybe more. My count's not in my head right now. The prophets of old said something, something particular about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled it. He brought it to pass. So what are some promises Jesus fulfilled? Jesus fulfilled the promise that God made that he would send someone into the world born of a woman who would crush the devil under his heel. I'm glad he fulfilled that one, aren't you? Jesus fulfills the prediction that the one to come would be born descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah through the line of King David. Jesus also fulfills the promise from Isaiah 53 of a suffering servant, a man who dies a sacrificial death and then rises from the grave to bring forgiveness to the people of God. And sometimes Jesus even fulfills things that weren't even obvious prophecies. In Matthew 2, 14 to 15, a familiar passage for you who think about Jesus and, and when he was a young child, Joseph taking him and Mary down to Egypt. In Matthew 2, 14 and 15, though, listen to the way this words, this, the Bible says this. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Isn't that cool? Because the line, out of Egypt, I called my son, was actually an Old Testament reference to God rescuing the nation of Israel from their Egyptian slavery. But once Jesus came into the land of Israel, out of the land of Egypt in his childhood, God let us know that that passage is also a foreshadowing of the action that Jesus fulfilled. Now, there have been some people that have tried to translate the word fulfill in a different way. And I want to speak to it just quickly. There's mainly Jewish scholars who would do this, but there are some Christian scholars doing it today that want to argue that the Greek word pleroo means not fulfill, but establish or confirm. And that, that, that meaning is in that word. They would suggest that what Jesus is saying here is he came not to abolish the law, but to establish the law, to make the law more binding. 
But that's not a faithful rendering of the Greek here, given the way Matthew uses the word pleroo in all the rest of the gospel. Jesus is not saying that he came here to put Christians or even the rest of the world under Jewish law. You can't use this verse to suggest that Christians are supposed to reestablish Old Testament Jewish festivals or to return to Old Testament Jewish rituals or to take on the food laws again or any of the legal principles. Jesus said he came to fulfill every last aspect of God's holy word. That's what this verse is teaching. He came to bring to fruition the complete meaning of all of Scripture. After all, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. You know that, don't you? In Luke 24, 27, the resurrected Jesus, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said all the Scriptures are about him. In Luke 24, 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Or in John 5, 39, Jesus said to the the religious teachers, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, says Jesus. What we need to know you and I need to know is that from the very beginning all of scripture has pointed to Jesus all of the Old Testament of the Bible shows us how much mankind needs a savior all of the Old Testament of the Bible repeatedly promises and promises and promises and promises a savior to come all of the Old Testament of the Bible shows us the glorious, miraculous acts that God did to bring about and to preserve the arrival of the Savior. All of the religious ceremonies, the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all of these serve to point you toward the coming of Jesus who would fulfill all of their purposes. So friends, understand this. Jesus fulfills Scripture. He's not against the Old Testament. He's not tearing down the Old Testament. Jesus is the whole point of the Old Testament. And we, if we are going to love Jesus, must love the word that promised his coming and which he fulfills. So if you want to know Jesus, you need to get into the Bible to see the promise of the Savior in the Old Testament and the Savior who did come in the New Testament. But let's go further And you see why this is important. Our second point in our second verse, all scripture will be accomplished. All scripture will be accomplished. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is Jesus doubling down on what he just said. 
Somebody might try to accuse Jesus of going against the law because he goes against the faulty interpretation of the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus said, I'm here to fulfill that word. I'm not here to tear it down. And now Jesus says, how complete is his mission? Jesus begins with the phrase, for truly I say to you. Now, what's the word for here telling you? It's telling you Jesus is not changing the subject. He's still talking to us about his fulfilling the scripture. And now he adds a statement of gravitas. This is important. He says, truly, I say to you. The, the word truly is the Greek amen, which is the, what, when we say that word, what do we say? We don't, do you ever say amen? You say amen, don't you? Same word. What does amen mean? Amen means that the statement you just heard or the statement that you're making is true. So when a person prays and they end their prayer with amen, they're saying, I agree with what was just prayed. Amen is not like saying, okay, bye at the end of the phone call. Amen is you saying that you affirm what's been said. So one person prays a prayer aloud and others say to God, me too, God. I agree, God. Let that be so. What she prayed, God, I agree with, God. That's what amen means. And when Jesus opens a sentence with, truly I say to you, he's telling the people what he's saying is important and very true. So Jesus says here, scripture is going to stand until heaven and earth pass away. That's very much like some Old Testament phrasing. And it communicates to us that so long as the world exists, so long as this age continues from now till God brings history to its close, something is going to be the case. I want you to think about a symbol that may help you understand something being the case till the, till the end of the world comes. Think about the rainbow. Genesis chapter 9, God set the rainbow in the clouds. Remember? And that phenomenon has a purpose. The presence of light going through water, being refracted to display the beautiful colors that the rainbow shows, that is intended by God as a reminder of a promise that God made. After God flooded the earth in judgment, remember Noah and the ark, God made a covenant between himself and all living things that he would never again flood the earth to destroy it. The rainbow is a reminder that God has given all of the globe a common grace. The rainbow reminds us that God withholds ultimate destruction from the earth until a day set in the future that God already knows when he will destroy the world with fire and establish a new heavens and a new earth. Listen to Genesis 9, 14 and 15. God says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds... I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
But also listen to 2 Peter 3, verses 5 through 7. 2 Peter 3, 5 says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Then down in verse 13 of Second Peter 3, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want you to notice two things about what I've just told you about the rainbow and God's plan. The rainbow is God's reminder of his preserving grace over the earth. What a terrible and sad thing it is that this symbol is now being used by groups that brazenly oppose the Lord and his ways. The rainbow reminds you of this. God says, I will not wipe out the world for your sin, at least not until the final day of judgment. But Peter reminds us a day is going to come. And the heavens and earth are going to pass away, at least the heavens and earth as we know them. And there's going to come a day when creation is changed. There's going to come a day when the curse of sin is burned away from the earth. There's going to come a day when the people of God, the forgiven in Christ, will live with Jesus forever on a brand new, sinless, perfect earth. And we who know Jesus, we long for that day. It's a day without sin, without suffering, without death, without pain, without sorrow, without futility, without shame, without any form of evil. What Jesus is saying in verse 18 of Matthew 5 is that until the day comes when God makes all things new, until the day when God finally, completely fulfills every promise he's ever made, Scripture, the written Word of God, will stand. Nothing will stop Scripture from being perfectly fulfilled. Nothing. And you might ask, well, how, just how fulfilled is the Bible going to be? How fulfilled will it be? <clears throat> Jesus says that neither, and I keep pronouncing this word in a way that you probably think is funny. You're looking at that and you're saying, not one iota, aren't you? I know y'all. Some of y'all have southern in you. That's not one iota. Jesus is pointing to the Greek letter yota, which is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And Jesus says that neither an iota, not even a dot, will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. He, he says the smallest Greek letter and then the smallest mark you can even make with a pen. And he's here saying, look, 
God is so true to God's word that not even the slightest marking of scripture will go unfulfilled. Every last bit is coming true. So hear me. Hear Jesus. Scripture will stand. It'll all be accomplished. Nothing is going to be lost from scripture. God is going to preserve his word forever. God is going to accomplish every last thing he's ever promised to you. This is why Christians, let's talk doctrine for a second. I know some of y'all love talking doctrine and some of y'all glaze over when I say doctrine. But listen to me. You've got to get this right. We must have a proper biblical doctrine of inerrancy in the Bible. God is not going to let the word of God be corrupted. God will not let the Bible be lost. God will not say things in the Bible that are false. The Bible is truth with no mixture of error. What the Bible says, God says. The Bible has not only no errors, the Bible has no possibility of error because the Bible is given by God and is fully sufficient to help us know how we may live in accord with everything that pleases God. We need nothing else. So if you would like to hear the voice of God, read your Bible. And if you say to me, Travis, I want to hear the word of God, I want to hear the voice of God out loud, then fine, read your Bible out loud. That's how you hear God's voice. It's written down in the word. So if you're praying and you hear a voice, watch out. Something's wrong. Now, if you're praying and you hear a voice and it turns out your spouse is behind you reading the Bible, it's good. But listen to me. The word, the word, the word is what you trust. Any voice or impression that you get is questionable. The word is unquestionable, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, perfect in every way. Jesus came to fulfill the scripture and all of scripture is going to be accomplished. Nothing in the Bible is going to be lost or forgotten. So then comes another question. How then should we treat the word of God? Look at point number three. Remain faithful to Scripture. Remain faithful to Scripture. Look at verse 19, our third verse. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not about to start telling people that the word of God doesn't matter. Instead, Jesus is going to call people to faithful and perfect obedience to the word of God. In Jewish teaching, you'll find contrasts often, opposites that illustrate. We've already seen them three times. Verse 17, Jesus says, I'm not here to abolish the law, but to do what? Fulfill it. He contrasts abolish and fulfill. Verse 18, we see passing away is contrasted with being accomplished. Now in verse 19, we see a contrast. Relaxing the commands of God is contrasted with teaching the commands of God and obeying the commands of God. 
We see the least in the kingdom of heaven contrasted with the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So first, I want you to understand this, Jesus. Jesus is pretty clear here. There are commands of greater importance. How do we know? Because he talks about least important. Even the least important command you can't ignore. When Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest command of the law? Jesus didn't stop and say, hey, there's no greatest command. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But that doesn't tell us that any command or any word of God's is unimportant. It's all important beginning to end. Jesus just said every pen stroke is going to be fulfilled. Every pen stroke, every dot is going to be fulfilled. Then Jesus says, don't relax God's commands. So, You don't take the command, do not commit adultery, and assume, well, yeah, but that only applies in a strict physical sense. We've we've experienced this in our nation when a former president used the word adultery in some unique ways. Jesus says, no, don't relax the commands of God. Don't, Don't relax the intent of the commands of God. And in verses 27 through 30 of this chapter, Jesus is going to say to us, look, lusting in your heart after somebody is a sin in the adultery family, so don't you think you can get away with it? Some of the Jews around Jesus were making divorce a very easy thing, saying you could divorce a woman if she burnt your dinner. In verses 31 to 32, Jesus is clear that the laws binding people together in marriage are far stronger than the current teachers were admitting. But when Jesus says don't relax any command, he's not saying that all the Old Testament commands are to be obeyed as laws by Christians till the world comes to an end. Did you know that? Let me give you an example. You'll rejoice in this example. It's in Mark 7, 14 to 19. Jesus is talking about food. And he says in Mark 7, 14, he says he called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. In that passage, Jesus just made it clear that his followers are no longer bound by Old Testament food laws. How many of you are happy about that? Yeah. Amen, right? I am, I am pro-lifting of that restriction. Now, Is that Jesus relaxing the command of God? The answer is no. But why not, Travis? How is that not Jesus relaxing the command? It was a command. Jesus said you don't have to obey it anymore. Because Jesus fulfilled the meaning and the reasoning behind those laws. See, the food laws were given by God as rules intended to make Israel as a physical nation look different than every other physical nation around them. 
After all, Israel had to be marked out as different so that you could see the fulfillment of God's promise that the Messiah would come through Israel as a unique nation, not a nation intermingled with all the others. The food laws were also given to teach the Israelites that there's such a thing as being clean or unclean before God. But get this, when Jesus came as God promised, there's no longer a need to mark Israel out as set apart and standing off differently from all the other nations. There's certainly not a reason to set to try to come to God through the nation of Israel. We don't go to God through Israel anymore because Jesus has come and he's opened up the gospel to people of all nations. Now, to risk a political statement, because some people would take what I just said the wrong way, that does not mean we should look for, well, therefore we should just let people destroy anyone who's a Jew, because that's been trying to, trying to happen all throughout human history, and that's evil, because it's evil to destroy any people group based on their people group. Now, Christ, the clean and unclean with the food laws, Christ makes us all completely clean before God by his shed blood through the imputation of Jesus' perfect righteousness. So, with all that said, we don't have to consider food as clean or unclean anymore. Jesus did not relax the food law. Jesus finished the food law. This, by the way, is where I would say I've known Christians who've gotten overly interested in Old Testament regulations and laws and have tried to return to the dietary laws. Look, if you grew up Jewish... And therefore, that's part of your culture. That's one thing. If you didn't and you run to embrace those food laws as if you're going to please God, you dishonor Christ. Because that's not yours. Now again, if you want to eat that type of diet because you think it's better for you, have at it. But don't you dare think it's spiritually better for you. Because Jesus says, I completed that. Okay. Same time, important for you and me today. We must not ever disregard Scripture. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Every verse of the Bible has importance. Every command, every promise, every picture of what God approves and what God hates, every one of them is important. No person can please the Lord while ignoring any part of the Word of God. We've got to understand that every word of God is perfect. It points us to Jesus. It shows us the character of God. It is a treasure of infinite worth. So do you want to honor Jesus? Be faithful to Scripture. Don't shrug off any part of it. Look at the word, Old Testament and New, and see how it all points you to Jesus. See how it directs you to live Teach others to follow it. Obey it yourself. Yeah, sometimes being faithful to the Old Testament is going to include seeing how a command is completed in Jesus. Sometimes being faithful is going to see how is it that we value that which God shows us he values. Y'all, this is going to be a lifelong task of yours. It's one you've got to be committed to because it's worth more than you could ever imagine. In fact, you might look at this and say, this feels kind of heavy. I want to show you how heavy this is and give you a glorious truth in our last point. Point number four, the, 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 the point I'll give you is this. Run to Jesus for righteousness. Run to Jesus for righteousness. And I want you to look at verse 20 with me. Jesus said, for I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus just said right there is heavy. This would have caught his hearers by surprise. The scribes and Pharisees were thought to be the most holy, most religious, most goody-goody of all the people. How could my righteousness ever surpass theirs? And Jesus doesn't even tell you how here. All he tells you is that the scribes and Pharisees cannot behave themselves well enough to meet God's standard. So here's the question for you, and you've got to think about this, or if you miss this, you'll miss the whole Bible. Is Jesus telling us that we need to work harder and be better so we can get ourselves into the kingdom of heaven? No, he is not. Jesus is not telling us to work harder and be better. You know why? Because you can't be that good. In Matthew 5, 48, the Bible says this, You therefore, this is Jesus, same teaching, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you guys like that for your standard you've got to meet? What was the standard? What's the word? Perfect. What's the word? How many of you live perfect? Jesus says, if you want to please God, you need not goodness, but perfection. You got to be as perfect as God is to please God. How you doing? None of us has ever been that perfect. See, some people think Jesus came to do away with the law of God's perfection. No, he did not. Jesus came to uphold it and to fulfill it. But you and I do not have to despair. This could stress you out if you're not listening, if you stop listening. Don't let it do it yet. No, we're not perfect enough to make it to heaven, not by a long shot. In fact, we are helpless. We're hopeless if we're left to ourselves. And this is why it's good news that Jesus, the one who fulfills all of God's word, has come to rescue us. In Romans 3, 23 to 25, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is that you? He then says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All have sinned. None of us are perfect enough to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. None of us has enough righteousness in ourselves to do better than the Pharisees. Not one of us. But God has given a gift. God gives redemption. God gives propitiation. God, what that means is God paid the price for our sins, not by punishing us, but by punishing Jesus for our wrong in our place. 
Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to take upon himself the penalty for the sins of every person God will ever forgive. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Get this. Jesus took upon himself our sin, so that in him we might be given as a gift the righteousness of God. Of God. In Jesus, because Jesus lived a perfect life, because Jesus died a sacrificial death, because Jesus rose from the grave, we can be forgiven of our sins and we can be given a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees because it's the very righteousness of Jesus. So, what you need to know, what you gotta know, we are sinners. And we cannot please God on our own. We cannot be that good. The law says be perfect and you can't do it. But I'm not calling you to ignore the law. I'm calling you to hear the gospel in the scripture. Instead, God says this, this, turn from your self-effort. Turn from your sin. Turn from thinking you can be a good boy or a good girl. Instead, run to Jesus. Because if you will put your faith in the Son of God, if you will trust in His life, death, and resurrection, you will find that God forgives you and gives you Jesus' own righteousness to be yours. This is the only way to be saved. Run to Jesus for righteousness. Jesus has been teaching us here about being citizens of God's kingdom. And he's taught us a couple significant things. And if I boiled them down to their essence, they're this. You need to see that Jesus never opposes God's word. In fact, Jesus fulfills and teaches and treasures God's word. And if you want to be like Jesus in your life, you need to treasure and trust and teach the Word of God too. You've got to be committed to Scripture. Every letter, every part, every chapter matters. And Jesus is clear that we all need a righteousness that surpasses any righteousness you and I can achieve on our own. We need the perfection of God. Jesus came to give us that righteousness. That's the only way we can become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So I urge you as we close, if you know Jesus, thank him for his righteousness. And if you've never come to Jesus for salvation, I urge you, Come to Jesus in faith to receive the forgiveness and the righteousness you need to see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, I pray that you will make us people who love resting in Christ. Yes, let us love your word. Let us see your word as true and perfect, infallible and unchangeable, glorious, necessary. But God, don't leave us there just thinking that. 
Let it show us how much we need a Savior and let it draw us quickly to the gospel. Lord, only you can change the hearts of men. I pray today that those who hear this message will be changed. Lord, I know there's folks who don't know you who are going to hear this online, who are going to hear this from this room. God, would you be gracious enough to let this feeble attempt, empowered by your spirit, save souls? Father, forgive us, cleanse us and grow us, and let us indeed love you in your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.